Good evening, my dear brothers and sisters. We want to continue our fellowship this evening about this unbelievable matter of spiritual travail. I know that my brother Stephen and brother Dana have felt the, the impossibility of trying to adequately fellowship about this. And uh, my feeling is, I think, twice uh, theirs. As I mentioned yesterday, I feel like you've been a I've been asked to take the water that's over here in the bay and take it over to the ocean with a teaspoon. And, uh, you know, brothers and sisters, it's good to be in this place where you can't do it yourself. That way, we're we have to depend on him. And that's what we want to do tonight. I would remind us as we begin of the reality of what's happening in this meeting. The sovereign Lord of the universe has arranged it for us to be here in his presence, seated before him. Because he has something in his heart that he wants to speak to our hearts. Out of his great love for us, knowing everything there is to know about us, he has a way of taking his written word and speaking it to our hearts. Now, in order for this to happen, it seems to me, a miracle has to occur. Because our exalted Lord is at the right hand of our Heavenly Father. And here we are in Harvey Cedars, New Jersey. How is he going to speak to us? Well, first of all, the Holy Spirit has been sent to make that real. But the real miracle comes when he has to take a human vessel to somehow verbalize what's in his heart. And so tonight, I trust that our hearts are open, looking beyond any human vessel in all their weaknesses, and not listening to human words, but trusting that somehow our exalted Lord will speak a living word to each one of our hearts. And before he even speaks anything to us, let's decide that we're not just going to be listeners and hearers, but we're going to seek to obey whatever he speaks to us. Amen? Amen? Amen. Again tonight, I have a number of scriptures I can't ever remember when I have read this many scriptures in the beginning of a time of fellowship. But I just have felt in my heart that's what the Lord wanted to do this time, so I need to be obedient. So let's begin by going to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 9. What I sense, my brothers and sisters, is that we can be helped if we can see how the Lord made this matter of spiritual travail, something real and practical, manifested in the life of a man. And I see this is wonderfully displayed in this man, Saul of Tarsus, who became Paul the Apostle. And I'd like for us tonight to read some scripture that I trust will 
at least be a beginning place for us to consider together. First of all, what is really involved in spiritual travail? And secondly, how are we to respond when we find ourselves in the experience of spiritual travail? And what I've discovered in my little study of the scriptures is that we can be helped greatly in both of these matters by looking at the life and the ministry that we have of the Apostle Paul in the Word of God. So beginning in the very beginning of his life, his life with the Lord, we see that the Lord was preparing him for this experience of spiritual travail. So let's look, first of all, just at one verse in Acts chapter 9. Now, I'm sure all of you remember what is the the essence of Acts chapter 9. When this Saul of Tarsus was seeking to devastate and destroy, do away with the followers of the Lord Jesus, when he was on his way to Damascus, he was encountered by the exalted Lord Jesus. But I want us to look, first of all, in verse 15, when the Lord is giving instructions to Ananias about what he's supposed to do when he meets Saul. And the Lord said to him, that is to Ananias, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. So right in the very beginning, uh, Paul was to begin his journey with the Lord, his experience with the Lord, as a knowing that suffering was to be a part of his experience. Then let's look in Philippians chapter 3. <clears throat> These verses have been read on a number of occasions during this weekend. Philippians chapter 3. And we want to read verses 7 through 11. Again, Paul here is speaking. He says, But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ, and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him, and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Second Corinthians chapter 4. Verses 7 through 12. Again, Paul is the one who's speaking. But we have this treasure 
in earthen vessels, so that the surpassing greatness of the power may be of God and not of ourselves. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always caring about in the body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death works in us, but life in you. And now let's read the verse that is a theme, Galatians chapter 4. We want to read verses 19 and 20. My children, with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you. But I could wish to be present with you now and to change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Ephesians chapter 6. And we'll just read verses 10 through 13. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God so that you be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our flesh, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces in wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Second Corinthians chapter 11. We've also heard these verses read this morning. Paul is having to defend himself. He doesn't like the idea, but because of the situation, he feels like is an appropriate thing to do. Let's just begin with verse 22. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I'm more so in far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I have spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys, in dangers 
from rivers, in dangers from robbers, in dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and in thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Apart from such external things, there is a daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Who is weak without my being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? Second Timothy, chapter 4. Beginning in verse 6. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. And then a final verse in Romans chapter 8. Let's begin reading in verse 35. Who will separate us from the love of God in Christ? I mean, the love of Christ. Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. Let's ask the Lord to help us. Lord, we want to thank you for gathering us here this evening. We acknowledge and recognize your presence. and We also recognize that you are the sovereign Lord of the universe and the one who is head over all things to his church. We humble ourselves before you this evening, and we are so grateful that out of your mercy and great love to us, you have chosen to speak to us. And so, Lord, we want to be here seated before you with hearts that are open to hear what you have to say. And, Lord, we have already said amen to this matter of us being doers of your word. So, Lord, we again acknowledge our full and total dependence upon you for speaking, for translating, for listening, and for obeying. How we bless you that there's an unlimited anointing for all of this. And by faith tonight, we put ourselves under that anointing, thanking you in advance for all that you're going to do through speaking your word to our hearts. Lord, we want to know not just information, 
We want to know experientially the reality of spiritual travail. Help us tonight. We ask it in your name. Yesterday afternoon, we sought to fellowship about the issue of the hope of glory. Because for me, brothers and sisters, when we fellowship and consider this issue of travail, so that it won't, as our brothers have said, won't become something heavy and something negative, I felt like it would be helpful if we understood, first of all, the results the, the fruit that comes to those who experience this travail. It's not meaningless travail. As our brothers have shared with us, it's a travail that results in life. It's a, it's a travail that results in character. It's a travail that results in glory. Whatever God has had in his heart for you and me, as his redeemed children, he wants to bring that about in a very practical way. But it seems, as the Lord has spoken to us about this issue, that this matter of travail seems to be incorporated into all that God is doing. Now, we mentioned yesterday that the whole creation is in travail groaning, waiting for, eager ex expectingly, expecting for there to be a manifestation of the sons of God. And so it seems to me that as God has sought to, not, he, as he is in the process of recovering his creation, because you know, my brothers and sisters, we're not told as many details as some of us would like to have. But it seems that when we read the Old Testament, the information that we have is before hist human history, there was these beings that God created called angels. And he created three archangels, Lucifer, Gabriel, and Michael. And when we read Ezekiel 14, I mean uh, Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, we get some little insight into what was happening back there that resulted in what we have in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2. Because Lucifer, one of the archangels, was not satisfied just to be a ruling angel. Because of his pride, apparently. Because of his position. He felt like he was more qualified than just to be a ruling angel. And he decided that his goal, his ambition was for him to become God. Now, I don't know how you think about that, but it's very difficult for me to understand why a created being could ever even imagine becoming God, an eternal being who never had a beginning. But nonetheless, apparently this pride so blinded him so prevented him from really seeing reality that he did something very foolish. And the result was that God judged him. Now the possibility is that this planet upon which you and I live 
was a part of the responsibility that Lucifer had. And so God's judgment came upon this planet. Now, I want, brothers and sisters, for you to correct me if you think that my understanding is not correct. At least it's so far off that uh, I need some help in this. But as my, when I read our scriptures, it seems to me that the whole focus of God's heart, as far as the biblical record is concerned, is focused on this planet called Earth. Now you know the, the scriptures begins by saying, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Why didn't this, the, the writer, why didn't Moses say, in the beginning, God created heavens and Mars, or Jupiter, or one of the other planets? Why is the focus just on this planet Earth? And it seems like this is where the problem is. That is that God's kingdom is not a reality on this planet. Satan has been permitted to set up his kingdom of darkness here. But you know, my dear brothers and sisters, there is no way that our God, the God that we have come to know in the person of the Lord Jesus, could ever rest could be satisfied with something that we see described in Genesis 1-2. What it says, and there was emptiness and void and darkness was on the surface of the deep. I don't believe for one second that that's the way God created it. And it so displeased him. He had to find a way to recover it and fully restore it to the way it was in the beginning. Now, probably none of us would have thought about the way he chose to do it. But nonetheless, in his great wisdom, he chose to use human beings. He, he recovered the earth to such a point where man could live here on this planet. And then he created man in Genesis 1.26, and God said, let us make man in our own image, according to our own likeness. And let them rule. Let them take dominion. Let them subdue. Now, why would he want them to subdue something that was already perfect? <laughs> it wasn't perfect. In my understanding. And so this was God's choice. Was to create a being that could have open, clear, full fellowship with himself where God could communicate with him and he could communicate God. There was no hindrance. You remember God should co would come down in the cool of the day? And apparently there was fellowship between this man God had created and God himself. But then we know that Lucifer found another way. He disguised himself in the form of a serpent, went into the garden, deceived the woman, she disobeyed and ate of the tree, the fruit forbidden tree of the knowledge of good and evil. She gave to her husband and he also ate. Now we read that. But brothers and sisters, I think we need to let the Holy Spirit make clear to us. This was a very, very serious matter. Because God had created these, this man and woman to be his agents to fully recover he never intended for man to be a sinner. 
I don't know how many times we need to say this to ourselves, but it was never in God's heart for man to become a sinner. He wanted men whom we created in his image to have open, full fellowship. And that meant not only being able to talk with him, but to share his very life. So in the garden, there was not only the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but there was the tree of life. Now, God didn't force the man. He called attention to it. But he didn't force the man to eat of this tree. But it was there. But we know the story, the sad story, that Adam, under the influence of his wife, ate of the tree that the Lord said, don't eat of it. And in that condition, he became disqualified to be the agent that the Lord wanted to use to recover. But as it already been pointed out to us in Genesis chapter 3, when God is bringing judgment upon the man and the woman and the serpent, he said to the serpent, the seed of the woman will crush your head. You will bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. This was prophetic about our Lord Jesus as the second man, as the second, the last Adam and the second man. Because in our Lord Jesus, when he, as the Son of God, came and indwelt, it was incarnated in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, God began a new humanity. And if with this humanity, it was impossible for man to fail. Because he is God. This man could not sin. Now, for me, it's a great mystery. So I don't intend to try to explain how the, how the Son of God could be 100% God and at the same time 100% man. And his humanity didn't interfere with his divinity and his divinity didn't override his humanity. But this is God's way. And so our Lord Jesus came. He lived an absolutely perfect life. He was crucified. He was resurrected. He ascended back to the right hand of the Father. And he has sent the Holy Spirit to this planet. Interesting, brothers and sisters. To this planet Earth. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. And there was a group of 120 believers in the city of Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 2, you have the record. And there was a, a noise from heaven, like a violent rushing wind. And it came and filled the place here on earth. And came and filled the place. And a mighty move of God began. Because the new head of this new humanity, seated at the Father's right hand, has now poured forth his spirit, it's entered into 120 believers. And this, our Lord Jesus, begins this mighty work of building his church. And brothers and sisters, as I mentioned yesterday, to me, this is the most magnificent thing that God has ever done. It's his masterpiece. And so you and I find ourselves caught up in this. And so it seems that in this process of God recovering and his wisdom, it, there, there is no option about travail. There is suffering. 
as our brother mentioned to us, because of sin, because of rebellion, because man and God's creation became something that he never wanted it to become. God had to find a way. It had to be a righteous way. It had to be a way that was satisfactory to him. He couldn't do it in some cheap way. You see, you know, sometimes, brothers and sisters, it's so, so, such a wonderful experience to be forgiven of your sin. But I'll tell you what, we can grow to appreciate it in a deeper way if we will stop back, step back and begin to see what it costs God to be able to say, you're forgiven. He had to find a righteous way to forgive unrighteousness. And only God can do that. He couldn't use some unrighteous way. And the only righteous way he found was for his own son to become the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So you see that travail was already working in the heart of God. And now here you and I find ourselves a part of this great masterpiece that God is producing. First of all, we are the material. Do you understand, my dear brother and sister, that without human beings, without redeemed human beings who've been bought with the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, God's eternal purpose cannot be fulfilled. This is what he has chosen to do. And we're not only the material, but he says we are his co-workers. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works. What are these good works? I will build my church. This is what he's doing. That's why I, I appeal to us, my dear brothers and sisters, that we be careful how we use this word church. Because we, if we're not careful, we'll uh, make it small, make it something insignificant, make it something human, something earthly, something that man can somehow produce. And when we do that, it creates another major problem. For the Lord, if we can talk about him having a problem, we make it very, very difficult for him. And so if we're to be a part, if we're going to be cooperators with God and be a part of God producing this masterpiece, it seems to me, brothers and sisters, there are no there is no option. If the Lord is to have his bride. If the church is to be brought to a place of being a glorious church without spot, wrinkle, blemish, or any such thing, how can that, be, how can that possibly become a reality and there not be any suffering, no travail? It's impossible. Maybe we haven't been informed, but I trust that after this weekend, you get it clear and I get it clear in my heart. That if we're going to be a part of God's work, we have to know and experience the reality of travail, spiritual travail. It's God's way of accomplishing his work. And so when we look at this man, Saul of Tarsus, let's remember now again, where did he start? Where do we find him first? We find him trying to destroy God's masterpiece. Yes, he didn't realize it. But he, was, he thought he was serving God. In reality, he was an enemy 
of God. That's what he says in Romans chapter 5, that while we were yet enemies. Huh? Well, amazing grace. Mercy beyond description. That somehow our God would apprehend his enemy in such a way that he would become an instrument that the Lord could use to build the church. Brothers and sisters, we're deeply indebted to this Saul of Tarsus who became Paul the Apostle. You know, he was the the agent that the Lord used to write most of the New Testament. We learn much because of the revelation that God gave him. We learn much about the church, and we learn much about this matter of spiritual travail. And so we read there in Acts chapter 9 that right from the very beginning it was clear that Paul was not going to be able to be faithful and go through this experience without experiencing some deep suffering. We shouldn't be surprised at this, brothers and sisters, if we would just stop to think what our Lord Jesus said. If you want to be my disciple, what is necessary? What do you have to do? You have to first say no to yourself. Then you have to take your cross and follow him. Now, if you have stopped to think about that, there is travail built into that statement. And he doesn't wait until you get all the way into the experience. He tells you right in the beginning. But we don't like to read that. Our Lord Jesus is not interested in just having believers. He's not interested in just having forgiven people. He wants disciples. And he says, if you're going to be my disciple, this is what you can expect. You can expect that you have to say no to yourself. Our brother Stephen has shared on a number of occasions. The problem with Peter was he denied the wrong person. He should have denied himself. But rather he denied the Lord. And so brothers and sisters, if you think it's an easy thing as our dear brother was sharing this morning. There is a tyrant living inside of you and inside of me who wants his own way. He's a petty tyrant, but nonetheless he's a tyrant. And you have to learn to say no to him. I don't know how you find it, my brothers and sisters, but in my experience, sometimes the only way I keep him under control is to get my foot on his throat and keep it there until he stops breathing. But you say, brothers and sisters, you see, you see where this matter of travail, it begins right in the beginning. It's, it's not a matter we have to go looking for it. It's built into the experience. But somehow we have presented a gospel that doesn't include this. A gospel of forgiveness. Hallelujah, there is forgiveness. Where would we be without it? But I think the great evangelical error has been that we have focused only on forgiveness. We have, de- we have deceived people by letting them think that all that is necessary is to have their sins forgiven, they're going to go to heaven, and that's it. This is a distortion of the gospel that the Apostle Paul preached. So, brothers and sisters... 
It was not something new that Paul began to experience. It's something that each one of us need to understand that from the beginning of our surrendering of our lives to the Lord Jesus, you have to learn to know how to enter into spiritual travail, saying no to yourself, taking up your cross. Brothers and sisters, in the day when our Lord Jesus was walking here on the earth, if you saw somebody carrying their cross, where do you think they were headed? To a party? I don't think so. They were headed for their own crucifixion. So you see, our Lord in no way deceived us. He makes it clear right from the very beginning. Following me, being my disciple, includes dying. And so what we discover, my dear brothers and sisters, is that Paul, in the using of his le- the language he uses in the writing of his letters, it can help us get a, a fuller, more comprehensive understanding of what is involved in spiritual travail. And so, when I joined the Navy in 1955, One of the things that they trained us to do was to name all the parts of a ship. It was called a class in nomenclature. We had a mock ship on the uh, training base. And we had to go through classes where we had to learn the names of the ship. First of all, we had to learn the difference between a a ship and a boat. Simply... You can put a boat in a ship, but you can't put a ship in a boat. That's very important. You never call a ship a boat. And then you had to learn what the the front was called and what the back was called. You didn't call it the front and the back. It was a stern. I mean, the bow and the stern. (laughs) It's been a long time, brothers and sisters. Fifty years. Okay. Also, there were no doors on the ship. It was called a hatch. But you had to learn all this language. You didn't have a mop. You had a swab. All the, the language was all different. But it helped you to understand, to have communication with the people who were on the ship. Well, something like this is what I think we discover when we begin to look at the language that Paul uses in many of his letters. I've only chosen a very few of them tonight. I, I encourage you, my dear brother and sister, that from now on when you're reading the, uh, the letters of Paul, that you allow the Holy Spirit to, you know, highlight <laughs> this matter of spiritual travail. I think you'll find it everywhere. We'd be amazed at what, where has it been all this time? Why are we only talking about it now? Where have we been? Well, tonight we want to spend a little time uh, looking at some of this language that Paul uses. First of all, we have read a number of times in Colossians chapter 1, verse 24. Paul says, "I, I rejoice in my sufferings. I do my part in making up of that which is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Now, there's two words that are included in this matter of travail. First of all, suffering. 
Suffering is a, it, it's, it's a, it's a integral part of the travail. Afflictions is another way, another dimension of this issue of travail. And then tonight, we took the time to read 2 Corinthians 11, where Paul has this list of his experiences. I took the time to write down what he said. We're not going to read the whole passage again, okay? But you know, he, he mentioned 15 specific things that he experienced. Now this, my brothers and sisters, gives us a big picture, a more detailed picture of what we're talking about when we talk about travail. Now I'm just going to mention them because hopefully you remember them and if not, you can go back and read them another time. He said he's been in more labors, in more imprisonments, beatings, dangers of death, three times 39 lashes, my multiplication says 195 lashes. Stoned, shipwrecked, night and day in the deep. In dangers eight times. Dangers from different things. From all different areas. Eight different dangers. In addition to the danger he talked about earlier. He doesn't tell us what that danger was in the beginning. But dangers, hardships. Many sleepless nights. I think this finds us out, brothers and sisters. Hunger and thirsty. Cold and an exposure. And the daily pressure of all the churches. An intense concern for all of those who fall into sin. Now, brothers and sisters, to me, this puts this issue of travail. In a, in a light that helps us to see that none of us can escape. Now, not that any of us will experience this. I don't know, maybe. Huh? Doesn't look too good right now, brothers and sisters. Sorry. Maybe some of you bro younger brothers and sisters, maybe you will be the ones to be called upon to go through some of these experiences. But you see why the Lord seemed to make, take this man, Saul of Tarsus, and in a sense, set him out before us as an example. So we can begin to appreciate and understand in a fuller way this matter of spiritual travail. Now, maybe there are others. We just don't have the record. But because of the, the sovereignty of the Holy Spirit working in this man, he was not bragging, my brothers and sisters. He was having to defend. Not because he wanted to. He was just being truthful. And yet here were his experiences. I don't know how you feel about it. But for myself, I think any one of them would have been enough for me to say, forget it, I'm hanging this thing up, I'm going someplace else, I'm going to do something else. But this dear brother, by the grace of God, and we know, as he says earlier, it is by the grace of God that he was able to maintain his focus, to be obedient to the vision that he had, 
to be loyal to his Lord in the midst of all of those kinds of experiences. Now, in addition to that, Paul talks about this matter of having a sentence of death. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. I wish we had time to read some earlier verses, but anyhow. He says in verse 9, Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves, so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. Now, I I can't uh, begin to explain to now what, what it meant for Paul to say that he had the sentence of death, but Couldn't I put it this way? My little bit of understanding, he was a living dead man. He was dead to himself and dead to his own ambitions. And yet he was alive because it was a sentence of death that was operating in his life. Now, if you'll notice in uh, chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians... He says, for we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal bodies. We mentioned yesterday, and our other brothers have mentioned it as well, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Brothers and sisters, there are so many wonderful dimensions to this salvation that God has provided in his Son. In addition to you and I having our sins forgiven, in addition to having been placed in the body of Christ, Christ himself has come to take up residence in our hearts. He talked with his disciples about it in John 15. Abide in me and I in you. But sometimes we we don't stop to consider this. But Christ is in us. And as Paul says here in 2 Corinthians 4, we have this treasure in earthen vessels. Now, where is the earthen vessel? Right here. It's just an old clay pot. And as one brother says, some of them are a little cracked. Pots. But just an ordinary human being made out of dust. And yet inside of it is God's treasure. Now, you, if you had a treasure, brothers and sisters, I'll guarantee you, you wouldn't put it in an old pot. But God has chosen to do so. And what he's saying is there is a way for this treasure to be manifested, even while we're living here on the earth. Now, what has to happen? Spiritual travail. Let's go back to the earlier verses. Verse 8. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not despairing. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Now, what is Paul talking about here? Because if you go to this chapter 4, you'll see he's talking about the ministry that God had given him. What was his ministry? To manifest Christ. 
And this is the same thing for every one of us, brothers and sisters. This treasure of Jesus, the life of Jesus, having been placed inside of us, our ministry is to allow this life to be manifested through us. But just like the alabaster vial had to be broken, this clay pot has to be broken too. And this is what travail is. Travail is the experiences that the Lord allows us to go through or ordains for us so that the breaking can take place and the release of the life can be a reality. As our brother mentioned this morning, we're not going to break ourselves. We love ourselves too much. We're not going to put ourselves through that kind of pain. But brothers and sisters, if we said to him, my life belongs to you, then he sovereignly chooses the way that the vessel get broken. The same way he did with Paul. Now, you know, Paul is Paul. And the Lord had to do what he needed to do. But you know, my dear brothers and sisters, he will also design our sufferings too. If we give him the permission, if we commit ourselves to allow this treasure that he's put inside of us to get manifested right where you live every day, right in the home where you live, on the job where you work, at school, among your friends, especially in the body of Christ. His soul's very, very sad, brothers and sisters, what we have done to one another. We have all the treasure, all the fullest capacity of the love of God that we need. You know, my brothers, there is no limit to his love. It's unlimited. And the reality is, the more that you give it away, you know what you discover? There's more there than when you gave it away. You not only recover what you gave away, but there's a fuller measure. In Brazil, most of the homes have what they call a water box. And this water box is a place where they receive water from the, from the, uh, from the city. But everybody has a water box so that you don't have to be connected directly all the time. So if the water gets turned off, you have a little bit of reserve. Well, what I'm suggesting to us, as I suggest to my brothers and sisters in Brazil, you have a water box, let the Lord fill it up. And then you get you a ladle and you start walking around, pouring it out on your brothers and sisters. And you'll find, not only, (laughs) you'll find, you'll discover that the water box even gets bigger because the Lord wants us to learn how to be faithful. You know, when I was considering this matter, I tried to work it out where I could very neatly fellowship about the issue of us as individuals and the issue of the church and the issue of creation, but the Lord didn't seem to like want that way to happen. But let's think for a moment. What kind of travailing do you think ought to be experienced by those of us who are members of the body of Christ? How can we travail as assemblies? Not just as individuals. We'll get to that. We'll get back to that in a moment. There are three things that came into my heart. Our brother mentioned one of them this morning. 
We need to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Dear brothers and sisters, there is absolutely no excuse for the divisions that exist among us. They are man-made. They did not originate with the Lord. And in my little bit of estimation, they are a grievous sin against the body of Christ. A grievous sin against our Lord. Can you imagine, seated in his position, looking down upon his church that he purchased with his own blood, and seeing that we are hopelessly divided into little groups. And not only are we divided, we have nothing to do with each other. I know I've shared this story before, but I, I, I think it's true. I'm not sure. I, can't be, I can't guarantee you. But there was a group of Baptists in some southern state. Please forgive me, you brothers and sisters from Alabama. But there was this group of Baptists, and some of them began reading John 13. And they discovered that there was a washing of feet. So you know what happened. Some said, we want to wash feet. The other says, no, we don't want to wash feet. So what did you have? They, set, they split. So you have the foot washers and the non-foot washers, okay? Then the foot washers, when they got together, they couldn't decide to wash one foot or two feet. So you had the one-footers and the two-footers washing foot washers. But you know what I think, my brothers and sisters? There's a good possibility if you and I were there, we would have insisted on having warm water, not cold. <laughs> and we would have divided again. How we laugh. And I, I know it's, it's funny, but it's not funny to him. My dear brothers and sisters, we need to take the grace of God. We need to die to all that divides us. There is no legitimate reason for you and I as the Lord's people to be divided. You know, my brothers and sisters, he travailed in John 17 before his crucifixion. And what was the number one issue in his heart? That they may be one even as you, Father, and I are one. How can we take the liberty to, to be divided when he agonized, when he travailed? How can we call him Lord? How can we say that we love him and continue to do this thing? Now, I know that each one of us have to find our way. And I appreciate again my dear brother Stephen. I remember hearing him say many years ago, when we're faced with this difficulty of being divided, he says you have to have big heart and little feet. You know what that means? Heart big enough to embrace every one of God's children, but feet small enough to walk in the light that the Lord has given you. Oh, brothers and sisters, in this matter of travail, we need to die to everything that divides us. May the Lord forgive us for doing something earthly, Something human, something that man can do, and then daring to put the name of the Lord Jesus on it. I, I you know, brothers and sisters, I don't know. Maybe there's something wrong with me. But why does he withhold his judgment? Why does he put up with this? But he does. But I think for those of us gathered here tonight, we need to take a serious consideration.
And maybe we need to make a commitment tonight. Lord Jesus, by the working of your spirit, there's one spirit and one body. And if I'm going to obey the Holy Spirit, then I have to accept everyone that the Lord has accepted. How dare we, brothers and sisters, refuse to have fellowship with someone that has been purchased with the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ? Can you explain to me? I'm sorry, I I have no way of trying to understand that. There is no reason for it. There is no basis for it. We cannot do it and not bring grief to his heart. The second thing is this matter of loving one another. You remember, brothers and sisters, in the hours just before our Lord was crucified, when he was washing the feet of those 12 men, He said, a new commandment I give unto you. Now, please be careful. He didn't say a suggestion or a good idea. Brothers and sisters, if he's the Lord and he commands something, do we have an option? Do we have an option? I don't think we have. We need to love one another. And he doesn't say you love the people that are easy to love. He just says, love one another. How? In the same way that I have loved you. Now, dear brothers and sisters, if you don't think you need to travail, face with that responsibility, you need to take your blinders off. Why? In my estimation, the Lord has saved some very, very funny people. (laughs) One of them speaking tonight. And you know what he has said? You know what he has done? He's put these funny people in your life. And not only that, he said, now you love them the same way I love you. And he doesn't give us any out. We cannot in any way. It doesn't make any difference who they are, no matter how difficult they are. We do not have the liberty to stop loving them. We can't choose. Now, you know, my dear, dear brothers and sisters, there's only one way that we can love each other as he loves us is if we find another kind of love than the one we were born with. You cannot love the way he loves unless his love floods your heart. And so we need, brothers and sisters, to uh, seriously consider Because you know, my brothers and sisters, let's just be real. Some of us are not easy to love. I share with my brothers and sisters in Brazil, I say, you ever hugged a cactus? (laughs) That's what it's like to have to love me. And there are those sharp things sticking out all over the place. You have to learn to, you know, jiggle around a little bit and try to avoid those sharp things. But my brothers and sisters, you don't have an option. You have to love me. Even if I am long-winded and loud, you still have to love me. We don't have an excuse. We have to learn to love. And I want to say one more thing about it. There's not a one of us here tonight who can't learn this lesson. You may not be able to do a lot of things 
in the body of Christ. But there is no excuse. Every one of us, from the youngest to the oldest, is not a gift. It's a life being manifested. And this love has been flooded into your heart. And my dear, dear brother and sister, if you'll say to the Lord right now, Lord, I want to learn this lesson. Because you know, this is what he was trying to teach the disciples in John 13. He waited to the almost the last minute, the, the right opportunity to teach these men the most important lesson of loving one another as he loved them. And he gave them the example. What does it mean to love? Get down on your knees and wash the dirty feet of your brothers and sisters. Even if they splash the water in your face, You continue to wash their feet. Now, dear brothers and sisters, this is travail. Because God will be faithful. Our Lord will be faithful to put people in your life that you'll not be able to love naturally. And he won't say, okay, they're too difficult. Try another one. No. If you refuse to love this one, probably somebody twice as difficult to love will come into your life. I'm serious. I'm serious, my brothers and sisters. So, let's take our Lord at his word. If we're going to call him Lord, then what we need to be concerned about is obeying him. And I can't remember any place else where the Lord Jesus says, this is my commandment. It ought to get our attention. And we need to learn to die to ourselves. So what you discover in Paul's language is a, an emphasis on dying. We already mentioned the fact that there was a sentence of death. We saw here in 2 Corinthians 4, carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus, daily being delivered over to death. And so... We need to face the reality. It's not enough, brothers and sisters, for us to come here and fellowship about this issue of spiritual travail if we're not prepared to begin to put it into practice. And we need to understand from the very beginning that it involves dying. First of all, dying to ourselves. Dying to our old man. You notice in Romans chapter 6 that Paul talks about knowing this, that your old man was? Sound like death to me. Huh? Your old man was crucified. Now you have a responsibility. What is your responsibility? Is to reckon him to be dead. You're going to have an opportunity every day of your life For the old sinner to raise up and exert his power and disobey and sin. But brothers and sisters, there's good news. The gospel tells us the sinner's dead. You know, it's the only kind, (laughs) the only kind of a sinner who doesn't sin is a dead one. And God took care of that. He put us in his son. So that when his son was crucified, what happened to the old Ernie Hyde? What happened? He was crucified. 
He's dead. He's been buried. But hallelujah, I've also been raised to walk in newness of life. But this is travail, brothers and sisters. For us to stand against this old man. Against this tyrant who always wants his own way. Who is hostile toward God. There's nothing he can do to please God. Romans chapter 8. The mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God. Oh, you may use all the right language. But you need to know that your old man, no matter how much you've educated him, no, much, no matter how much you've tried to sophisticate him and trying to teach him all the spiritual language, he doesn't want to do the will of God. He's not able to do the will of God. There's only one solution, and it's death. Death by crucifixion. And you and I need to learn to say amen to God's way. We try to find another way. <laughs> oh, we, 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 try to, we try to find a way to take this old sinner and cause him to become a Christian. This is Romans chapter 7. Brothers and sisters, if you're in Romans 7, I want to encourage you to get out of Romans 7 into Romans 8. Some of us have been living there entirely too long, complaining about the good that I would, I do not. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will set me free? Well, you need to ask that question, but also remember Paul's answer. Who will set me free? Thanks be unto God. He has done it. But you and I need to go through spiritual travail and keep that old man in the death position. And then by faith, watch the resurrection life of Christ come in and take over and enable you to live a life and overcome sin in a way that, that God has designed it. Also, in Galatians chapter 6, Paul says, God forbid that I should boast, except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. To which, let me read it before I, I don't want to misquote it. Galatians chapter 6, verse 14. But may it never be that I should boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. Is that where you're living, brother and sister? Are you living free from the influence of the world? Are you one of these people who's trying to change the world? You know, sometimes I get this idea that some of us are trying to build a house. And, and you know, I'm trying to build a house, but it's going to be burned up. It's going to be burned down. This world is going to experience the judgment of God. You don't need to invest your life in it. Doesn't mean that you don't, you know, that you're not involved in terms of a job and these kinds of things. But you need to be careful you don't get sucked into the method and all this going on. Because you need to remember, and I need to remember, it hates Jesus as much today as it did when he was crucified. And you and I need to be crucified to it. We don't need to let it influence us. Oh, how this has crept into the lives of us as the Lord's people. I don't mean to become legalistic and small and, and petty. I don't do that. But isn't it amazing how the world tells us so many of the things we should do? What kind of clothes to wear? How long our hair should be? Etc. and etc. The fashion of this world. 
Do not be conformed to this world, but be ye transformed, Paul says. So we need to be crucified. And then that wonderful verse of Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Do you know, my dear brothers and sisters, our Lord Jesus desires to manifest himself through us, live his life through us. But in order to do that, there has to be a dying. There has to be a travail. You have to learn to see that that old man is your biggest enemy. The one you look in the mirror at every morning is the greatest obstacle to your spiritual growth. Because you see, even Satan can only work through that old man. And so in reality, he becomes your big enemy. And you know what else, my brothers and sisters? You're the only one who can do anything about him. We would like very much to... uh, to be able to help people stay in that crucified position. We are experts on how other people ought to die. (laughs) But what about ourselves? You're responsible for you. And so this issue of dying, of being crucified. Well, let me just mention these other words that Paul uses I'll mention the scriptures and and then we want to go to something else as we try to finish up. He says, perplexed, persecuted, struck down. He he, He cried. He had tears when he was laboring among the Ephesian believers. I don't know about you, my dear brothers and sisters. I never pictured Paul crying. I see him as this strong he man. This was part of his travail. He cried. And brothers and sisters, I think if we haven't cried, probably uh, there's something that the Lord wants us to enter into. And then there's another dimension to Paul's life that I was particularly impressed with. In 2 Timothy, chapter 1, verse 15. You are aware of the fact, he's writing now to Timothy, you are aware of the fact that all who are in Asia have turned away from me. What do you think was happening in Paul's heart when he wrote those words? When all in Asia, he had labored at a, at a great expense, brothers and sisters, to, to bring these people to a knowing of the Lord, He invested his life in them. And now when he's in a tight place, in a difficult place, they abandon him. I don't know your experience, my dear brothers and sisters. And I don't say this in any way to make you feel sorry for me. I don't want you to feel sorry for me. But maybe it's been your experience too. You know the people who have hurt me the deepest in my life? are my brothers and sisters in Christ. Not my enemies, but those that I've invested my life in. 
when the Lord wants to do a deep work in our lives, he usually uses our brothers and sisters to do that deep work. So don't get shocked. Don't get surprised. Don't despair. Probably as designed by the Lord. But brothers and sisters, there is something here I think the Lord wants to teach us about being loyal to one another. This matter of loving one another. Don't tell me you love me and then you're not loyal. It's a contradiction. And so we need very, very much to have relationships with one another. Oh, may the Lord help us to have relationships where I would rather die than be disloyal to you. Oh, brothers and sisters, maybe, maybe some of us here tonight are going to face that kind of pressure in our life. And I encourage us to begin now building these kind of relationships. It would be wonderful if we could have these kind of relationships with everybody. But humanly, it's not possible. But brothers and sisters, we can have two or three people in our life that we commit ourselves 100% to. We're open with them. We're transparent with them. We would rather die than be disloyal to them. I think this is travail. I think it means that I have to die to a lot of things in myself to have this kind of relationship, to be submitted to another brother, to where I don't make independent decisions. I don't take the liberty to just make a decision without considering my brother. Oh, what wonderful safety. What wonderful joy there is in having this kind of relationship. And I want to encourage us tonight for you to ask the Lord to put somebody like this in your life. Brothers and sisters. People that you say to, I'm not going to make an independent decision. I'm not going to make a major decision without consulting you. If you see anything going on in my life that's dishonoring to my Lord, come to me and talk to me. And I want to say that to all my brothers and sisters here tonight. You know, we sang that song tonight about being an overcomer at the set of sun. You know, at the end of your life, you're, you're very vulnerable because you think you have arrived. That all of this history behind you, there's no possibility of you falling away, of being deceived by the enemy. But you're already deceived if you think that. At this time, we need each other more. And I say to every one of my brothers and sisters here tonight, if you hear of anything, if you see anything happening in me that is dishonoring to my Lord, come to me, communicate with me somehow. I want to be able to stand before him, having been faithful. Now, I know it's only by his grace, but sometimes, brothers and sisters, We don't become good stewards of his grace. So, let's not turn away from each other. Let's not abandon one another. No matter what it costs us, let's determine we're going to love one another and be loyal to one another and serve one another. I know my time is gone. And I'm going to take a few more minutes if it's okay. Because I want us to see Paul's response in the midst of his travails. First of all, in Colossians chapter 1, an amazing statement. I rejoice. <laughs> I rejoice in my sufferings. 
Sounds like this man needs to have a visit to a psychiatrist. I rejoice in my suffering. Now, let's be honest. Is this the way you and I react when something happens in our lives that we would put under the category of suffering? No. We have a party, but it's usually a pity party. And we invite many of our friends and we tell them all about the horrible things that are happening in my life. But brothers and sisters, we won't get the most out of our sorrows that way. It'll be a waste. And in Romans chapter 5, Paul says, I exult, exult, E-X-U-L-T, in my tribulation. And the Lord Jesus tells us in Luke chapter 6, that when you are persecuted, what are you supposed to do? Leap for joy. I haven't seen that happening recently. Some believers jumping up and down say, I'm so happy because people are persecuting me. Paul talks about waiting eagerly. This is another attitude, a response when we're going through. the. We need to know that the Lord is working something out in our life. that It may not be clear to us. And you and I need to learn to wait, to, be, to persevere, to be patient. Till we allow him to finish the work. Now we didn't talk about Ephesians chapter 6 about standing firm. But my dear brothers and sisters, we are in a battle whether we know it or not. We need to know something, my dear brothers and sisters, that Satan hates the church as much as he hates the Lord Jesus Christ. And if we are so foolish to put our head in the sand and ignore the fact that we are in a real battle. But you see, part of our travail is learning how. In the midst of that battle, to stand firm. Putting on the whole armor of God, but learning to stand firm. And then, I don't know how you respond to Paul's final statement there in 2 Timothy chapter 4. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. He's not bragging. He's just making a, a statement. Now, where did this whole thing start? It started with Ananias being informed that Paul was going to experience much suffering. And Paul in Philippians chapter 3 even talks about that he's willing to forgo everything. That he may gain Christ. What did he mean by gaining Christ? That he may know the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed unto his death. That's knowing him. So he fought the fight. He finished the race. He kept the faith. And you remember what he said? A crown of righteousness is awaiting me. And not only for me. Oh, I love that one, he said. But also for those who love his appearing. Do you know what that means, brothers and sisters? You and I can also have that crown waiting for us. But we need to fight the fight. To finish the race and to keep the faith. I'm going to close by just calling your attention to that experience in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, where Paul is talking about what he called a thorn in the flesh, a, a messenger from Satan to buffet him. Interesting, brothers and sisters. A messenger from Satan? You mean the Lord might use Satan? 
to do a work in the lives of his children, even one of his servants, like the Apostle Paul. Well, you know what, my brothers and sisters? Sometimes Satan becomes God's faithful servant and doesn't know it. Okay? But I want us to, to notice how Paul responded in this situation. What did he do? He implored the Lord. <laughs> I mean, he begged the Lord three times that it would be removed. Now, here's my question. What if the Lord had not answered him the third time? Hmm? You think he would have asked the fourth time? And maybe a fifth time? Or a sixth time? I think so. Because it shows us that Paul took these issues that were happening in his life. And he didn't just try to work them out on his own. He went to the Lord with them. He sought the Lord. He implored the Lord. So what do you think Paul? What was, if Paul were here tonight, what would he say to us? He would say, it was the most wonderful experience because I learned one of the greatest lessons I ever learned. I learned that when I'm weak, that's when I'm strong. How long do you think it takes us to learn that lesson? Huh? So brothers and sisters, we not only need to know in a fuller way what's involved in spiritual travail, but I think we also need to know what is the appropriate response in this situation. Many years ago, I was living on Long Island, eastern Long Island, and a, a dentist there befriended me. He discovered that I liked to fish, and he had a 30-foot sailboat. And he said, Ernie, glad for you to come. So he and I became good friends, and we went fishing many times. And he was always telling me about this place out at the end of Long Island called Plum Gut. A certain time of the year, the big bluefish, 14-pound bluefish, run through there because the water's going so fast. So anyhow, he says, when they're there, I'm going to call you. So one morning, 4 o'clock in the morning, I hear the phone. He says, Ernie, they're there. So we get on this sailboat, and we use the motor to get out there. And when we get out there, what you had to do is you had to take the boat and make it go up here and get in the swift water and float down, shut off the motor. And we did that, and sure enough, we started catching them, big ones. We had a big plastic garbage can, and I could see it full. We both got two, and the second time we went down, we tried to start it, and the motor wouldn't start. So here we are on a sailboat with a motor that doesn't run. And he says, Ernie, we have to get home. I know nothing about sailing. Okay? He said, we need to get home. And we had come about seven or eight miles, maybe even further than that, with the motor. And now we had to go back. And so when we start back, I noticed two things. First of all, the wind is blowing against us. And secondly, the tide is running out against us. And I said, we're in a sailboat. How do you go against the tide and against the wind in a sailboat? I didn't know about tacking, brothers and sisters. About seven or eight hours later, <laughs> this way for a while, this way for a little while, this way for a little while, but hallelujah, we got home. Now here's what I'm trying to say. When we find ourselves face-to-face -face with these kind of opportunities, 
to enter into travail, it's important to know how to set the sail so that the wind causes you to go forward. So, brothers and sisters, what a wonderful Lord we have. He is incomparable. There's no words to describe him. There's no way we can explain the love that he has for us. There's nothing we can use to fully understand it. And you know what his ultimate goal for us? The hope of glory. Transformed into the image of Christ. Sitting on the throne of the universe. Reigning with him. Serving with him. Being involved in God executing his kingdom. Now remember where we started. We started out as enemies. And now, through this work that he's doing, he's going to qualify us to sit with his son and reign forever and ever. Now don't get, as our brother Steve said, don't get in your mind this thing of wearing big crowns and sitting on a big gold, gold throne. No. The same way we saw the Lord's washing dirty feet. That's what he means by reigning. So, brothers and sisters, in all these things, we are to overwhelmingly conquer. I hope tonight that when we sang that song, I dare not be defeated. Make me an overcomer. Is that what's in your heart? You want to be an overcomer? Then I encourage you, don't go out of this place tonight until you tell him that, that you have a, a, a session with him and you give yourself 100% to him and you let him arrange the circumstances necessary to produce the character that he requires for you and I to have a responsible place in the age to come. Let's continue to love one another. Let's continue to embrace one another. Let's refuse to be divided. And let's find a way by the grace of God to communicate this glorious gospel to the multitudes and multitudes who have not heard. What a wonderful opportunity you brothers and sisters have here in the U.S. right now. In this crisis atmosphere. <laughs> so much instability and insecurity. A wonderful time to tell the lost about a Savior, about a Lord, about someone who can take their lives in the midst of this crisis and produce something beautiful out of it. Let's be encouraged, brothers and sisters. Let's pray for one another. Let's love one another. Let's support one another in this matter of seeking to be faithful. Let's be, I trust every one of us here tonight will be able to say with Paul, I fought the good fight. I finished the course. And I've kept the faith. And we want to hear our Lord Jesus say, Well done, good and faithful servant, by his grace.